Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. If you'd like to contact us, contact us at info at CheyenneVineyard.com. You can also find out more information about the Cheyenne Vineyard Church at CheyenneVineyard.com. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. Hey, what a beautiful day, huh? (laughs) Moms, would you stand up? I want to speak a blessing over you and thank the Lord for you. Father, uh, in Jesus' name, we just thank these women for the sacrifice, for the love, for the grace, for the mercy that you provided them to be mothers. Father, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would live through their children. I pray that the Holy Spirit would just lift these women high for the rest of their lives. That there would be honor surrounding them and your glory, Lord. Now, if everybody else would stand up, please. Father... In Jesus' name, I just pray that you would bestow upon each and every person here the heart of a mother, the grace, the mercy, the understanding, the patience. Father, that you would give all of those incredible qualities to to each and every one of us, that we could nurture people around us, that we could pick people up who are alongside us and love them, just like a mother would, with all the warmth, with all the glory, and with all the the sugar and spice that a mother has. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we just pray that you would be here today. We know you're here, Holy Spirit, be in control. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would bring out what you want and push back in what you don't want, Lord. Father, we just ask for your will to be done, for any information you want your people to have, God, that you would tell them. God, we ask you to be here. In all your glory, in all your spirit that only comes through your Son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. The Holy Spirit is an incredible one. (laughs) I've only spent probably at least when I knew a storm was coming, I started praying real hard that, that I wouldn't have to teach. <laughs> and then this morning for about, well, I've been up since four or something, asking the Holy Spirit to tell me I w- he didn't want me to teach today. <laughs> anyway, I didn't get that. Much to your chagrin, I'm sure. 
I want you all to go back to a time in your life. I don't know if you all had the, the same experience that I had, but uh, I would imagine almost all of us in our families had times in our lives where we piled everybody into the car, we piled everybody into the station wagon, we piled everybody into the little dinky car, and we headed off on a road trip. Everybody have those memories? Yeah, yeah. Now, some of them might have not been so fond. That's okay, too. <laughs> I remember, and I can't remember who did the song, but we would always pile, there were five of us, we'd pile everything into a car and drive from Colorado to Arkansas, and I hated Arkansas. So I didn't want to go in the first place. But I remember those long trips and, and, and I think it was a Bob Seger song. It just sticks in my head uh, where he's singing and he goes, the, the, the albatross and the whale, they are my brothers. Anybody remember that? Well, my sister would sit in the middle of my brother and I, and he was a biggin. He was four years younger than me, probably four times my size. And one, one time we're on the road, that song's playing, and my sister just sings beautifully, and the albatross and the whale, they are my brothers. <laughs> and that, I've never forgotten that. We, every time that song came on, my brother and I would just kind of go, oh, yeah, you're the whale, dude. <laughs> But that was vacations with the family. And then there were times when statistics say we moved. Our families moved. I read something that about four years ago it said, everybody in the United States will move on an average of 12 times. I, I know. I hurt just thinking about it. I don't know if I've moved that many times, probably that many times over the course of my life. But I really hope that I'm almost to the end of those 12 times. Uh, speaking of moving, <laughs> we're going to be on the move here soon, this fellowship, this body. I've been, I've been studying through the Old Testament, and, and I felt like God wanted, wanted me to take us to Exodus and look at some of the moves that the people had to make. So we're going we're gonna to do some moving around in Exodus, starting with Exodus 12. I, I've read a lot of information regarding this. I've, I've seen a lot of maps. And if there's anybody here from law enforcement today, I'm warning you, I have a red laser pointer. <laughs> I'm going to use it a little, maybe. <laughs> I, I, and I, you know, for those of you who don't know, with the world the way it is, you know, in some cities you could pop this thing out and do this and you're blown away. So just uh, bear with me. Hey, it works. The map doesn't work very well, but as I've studied this whole Exodus movement thing, I've looked at a lot of different theories that pastors and teachers and uh, Theological people have and archaeological people have. And, and what amazed me when I first started reading about it uh, were all of the routes that the knowledgeable people had 
where the Israelite people originated up here in Ramses. And then uh, they would take the people right over here across these bitter lakes, and they would say that was their crossing of the Red Sea. Now, I'm not real sure how deep all of those bitter lakes are, but uh, I did come across some, some people who put uh, some, some writings together according to Scripture, and I followed those verse by verse, and I sort of believe that those people came down here to where Sukkot would have been, somewhere in here from there to there, and that they would have traveled down in through here and that maybe somewhere in here is where they crossed the Red Sea at some of its deepest points. So anyway, that just gives you an idea. But there, there are maps out there. There are theories out there that uh, number more than my fingers and toes. So what I would urge you to do if you want to study it, it's very exciting, very informative, that you let the Holy Spirit tell you, according to Scripture, exactly what the people did and how they did it. Exodus 12.1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. Now, that's where I'm going to leave that. But what I found out as I read through these, these next few chapters, it, it was so amazing how God laid out His Word that He gave people indicators that they could read that in our time we could read them and go, wow, we can figure out pretty much how many exact days it took them to get from here to here and here to here because we know what God wanted His people to do according to the Sabbath day off and according to how many days He would allow them to work or wanted them to work. And so these people actually backtracked through the centuries to determine how many days God's people would have traveled each and every step of this journey. Now here we hear that uh, each family was to take a lamb and to sacrifice that lamb for the family. Well, in Genesis we read that Abel sacrificed a lamb for a man. Here we have the children of Israel being told to sacrifice a lamb for their family. And then the glory of John 1, where we're told that the Lamb for all mankind was to come. And He would give everything. He would be sacrificed for all of us. Isn't it glorious? How, how the, and I don't want to say not evolution, but the growth of how God gave that directive and what it grew into for each and every one of you and I. And then we move on to verse 31 in chapter 12. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. Moving to verse 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. 
With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. Okay, now, a lot of you know this. A lot of you have studied this. But what I find amazing is that 600,000 people totaled families uh, that added up to around 2.5 million. 2.5 million, and, and that's probably a conservative number. But can you imagine that many people? How many mile-high stadiums is that? 75,000 worth. I can't even imagine that. But can you imagine the excitement in the middle of the night? Go get them. Get them rounded up, Moses. Get them rounded up. Get everything together. I'm going to have you on the move. I'm going to have you on the move. So I am sure that the hubbub started through the people. I'm sure that there was an excitement through the people. Oh, finally, finally, our God has heard us. But there was one more thing that would happen, and that was the plague of the firstborn. God said, I'm going to do this to the firstborn of everybody, but I'm going to give you what you can do to remember me so that I will pass over your firstborn. God's intent for the firstborn was that every firstborn of the people of, of, Egypt, of Israel would, be, would become a minister to the people, would become a priest. That was his intent all along. So when his people were delivered out of that country, they left behind a country that was mourning, a country that was in agony over all of their firstborn. And I can't even begin to imagine a country wailing and, and, and yelling and screaming at the loss of every single firstborn who had not listened to the Lord, the Lord God, the Lord, the one God. I wondered why it was so important for the firstborn. And then it hit me that that was God's intent all along for the firstborn of every family to learn everything about their God that they could and relay it to the ones after. And he wanted them to remember that. He wants us to remember that. Which is why each year we, we celebrate the Passover. Uh, we've learned the, the glorious meanings of all the parts of that supper. And we've shared it together. And, and there is a somberness because you know at that very moment what was happening in the land. And yet you know what was to come before us. A man who would be born as a child. Our God, our Jesus, who would, who would have everything of our Lord in Him and be able to show us, help teach us all of those things, all of those ways that we could walk in His footsteps. Sukkot was a tent town. It was temporary. It was the first stop to get all of those millions of people huddled together and get them ready for uh, what, what is it, girding their loins? <laughs> I've, hear, I've, hear it, I, I've read it and I've heard about it. I think I saw it on a cartoon once where somebody, you know, raised the skirt and ran about 80 miles an hour. But I'm sure that's what the people were thinking. I'm sure that's what the people were thinking. But I'm, what I read that excited me was it said, and anybody that wanted to join them could. Now, there was a requirement 
as those people traveled with the Israelites, that if they wanted to participate in the Passover, if they wanted to, to be in the same process as those people, they had to deal with their flesh. And dealing with their flesh meant that they had to be circumcised. But that's just a picture that points ahead. As we go through this farther, I'm going to say, points to Jesus. Points to Jesus. I I thank you, Art, and and I thank Jay. I thank the people of this fellowship who are knowledgeable in in the Word uh, that have helped people who were not so knowledgeable grow and, and learn to read it. The Old Testament where every single part of it points to our Savior, to hope, to encouragement. I'm going to read 13.13 because this is another cool reminder. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Do you know in the Old Testament... There are references to donkeys about 25 times. Well, 25 times. <clears throat> donkeys laden down. The donkey has no ability. Uh, the donkey can't worship. There are different instances uh, of what is wrong with the donkey at that point. But then we have Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So even back then, 25 instances points to Jesus. Points to Jesus. But the exciting thing is and the humbling thing is, do you realize that that meant that a donkey was going to carry our Lord into the city where he would be crucified. Well, we, we know what the lamb represents in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, I realized what the donkey represented. Me. Yeah, me. I choose to say donkey rather than the other <laughs> word, but I'm sure I've been called the other word. But do you realize that? We, mankind is the donkey. And we've, we've been given the directive to carry our Lord into the city. Into this city. We've been given the directive to, to not mind the weight of our Jesus who provided the way for us and to take Him to each and every avenue of where we go. That was exciting to me. Pointed to Jesus. And then they hit stop number two. Chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. So the way they would have gone was pretty much straight across the north up here. 
had they been just taking a straight route. And do you realize that would have taken about 10 or 11 days? Instead, God had better plans. Some 44 days. Some 44 days of excitement, of wonder, of glory. And it appears that those people then made their way down here into the wilderness. And God wanted to wanted them to act like they were lost <laughs> so he could harden Pharaoh's heart. And so Moses was probably thinking, what in the world? What kind of strategy is this, God? We're leaving someone, and you want to harden their hearts? But Moses, being the man of God that he was, the father that he was, was faithful. So he led the people. He led them to a town called Etham. It was on the edge of the wilderness, and the town meant the town name meant with them. Etham, God was with them. You know, God, God took his people out of Egypt, but there was one thing missing. He needed to take Egypt out of his people. That's what he's trying to do for us. You know, he's told us not to be, not to be a, of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of it. But you know what? He's teaching us how to, how to take the world out of us. And it excites me daily when he gives me a, a head slap <laughs> and says, Randy, that, that's not me. I want you to turn this way, Randy. This is me. This is me. God had a plan. And so in that plan, after leaving Sukkot, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pahiharoth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh, and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And so I believe rather than make their way over here toward the very end of this part of the Red Sea, I believe Moses led them down into this area. Wouldn't you think with, with two huge bodies of water on each side, and mountains behind you, and then eventually seeing the Egyptian army and chariots headed your way, don't you think you'd be a little more frightened if you were way down here with no escape rather than up here with at least a chance to run, run as fast as you could in one direction? That's what I think. And as, er as early as the uh, 1800s, this portion of the Red Sea never appeared on any maps. Uh, my theory is that Satan has tried really hard through the years 
not to let information out about this little get-together. I do know that in reading that a, a man found a chariot wheel in this area of the Red Sea, the Gulf of, of Aqaba, and he has pictures of, of various other what appear to be chariot wheels sticking out of the floor of the ocean, and that one wheel was sent to uh, the Egyptian uh, State Museum, uh, but they have no recollection of ever receiving a, an Egyptian chariot wheel. And why would they? Why would I want to recognize and accept the fact in front of the whole world that I failed and that somebody else's God proved to me that he was the one, that he was the one. So I believe they were tucked down in there. Chariot got his, uh, uh, Pharaoh got his uh, 600 chariots. They were the top in warfare at the time. But it wasn't just 600 chariots. There probably were around 200,000 foot soldiers and another 40 to 80,000 of what would have been considered special forces. So when you consider that all of those people left Egypt to destroy the Israelites, I can only imagine the fear of seeing the dust, of seeing them coming down upon me, of knowing that I had no way of escape but huge bodies of water. And so the people started crying out. People started, this is the first of many times. What did you do, Moses? We were fat and happy back in Egypt. Look at this. We are all going to die. We're like sitting ducks here. Water, water, mountains. What are we to do? And I'm sure Moses was going, Lord. I don't know what you're doing. Please tell me. And God told him, I want you to take that staff that was a serpent and I want you to, to spread it out over the sea and I will show the people who is boss. So Moses did that. A huge wind came up and it appeared that the wind blew, blew a path through the Red Sea and as that wind blew through, the, dry, the ground dried up so people could walk on, on dry ground. And he said, Moses, take him through. Moses took him through. Two and a half to three million people. Can you imagine that process? Do you think, do you think it worked for somebody to say, yeah, please don't run as you're crossing the Red Sea? Please don't run. Everybody stay calm. Please keep your heads about you. I don't know. I don't think that's going to be happening. With chariots bearing down on you, the people crossed. And there were walls of water that the people could see as they went through. There were walls of water that Pharaoh's army could see as they decided to make that fateful choice to go down in following those people. They could see the walls. And still there was doubt. Because if, the, if that army had believed 
that something powerful, that powerful was happening, they would have never followed. Deception. Deception. They were so deceived. The people got through and the waves came crashing in. As the people have researched this journey, there have been found to be two natural crossing places. The one that seems most, uh, most logical, if you will, is right here, where there is a, a sandbar underneath the water, and it's only about 85 feet deep. But it drops off to where it's six, seven, eight hundred feet deep everywhere else. That, that leg of the Red Sea, if it were empty, would be like the Grand Canyon. So there was one area where the waters could be a wall and the people could have walked across that sandbar and it gradually lifted up to the other side. And there's a beach area where a couple million people could, could gather and organize once they're across. And they could readily see that army being destroyed. And they saw things that they sang about in the next chapter. They sang a song where they, where, where they thanked the Lord. 15 verse 1, I will sing to the Lord for He is highly exalted. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They go through everything they had just seen. They talk about the earth opening up and swallowing soldiers, which tells us that probably as they were crossing inside the Red Sea, that there was an earthquake or something where, where a huge hole opened up and soldiers went down in. It closed. The water came in. Everyone died. Everyone died. And there's even deception today. I can't tell you how many times I read somebody's opinion saying, Oh, there's no proof that Pharaoh died. Or there's no proof that all of the soldiers died. Well, the Word says they all died. But then the people sang a great song. They sang and danced and celebrated. They sang a great song. I have a theory here that there's a reason that God did this first big action the way He did. I think He wants, you know the song, more power, more power, more of you in my life. I think this was His, his way of beginning to tell the people. He'd been telling them through all the plagues, but nobody was really listening. He was telling them, you, you, need, you need my power. You're going to need my power as you go through this journey. And then when he had Moses stretch his staff and, and the water parted, I think he needed to tell people, he wanted to tell people, I am present here. People are doubting that I exist. So I am going to, through this big do, doing, prove to them that, I am present. And then when those waves came crashing in and killed that army, I think people started to get the idea that our God is preeminent. 
He's not just somebody big who, who sits in that cloud up there. But he is somebody who is everywhere. Only a God who is everywhere, only a God who has power, only a God who, who has presence, only a God who has preeminence could do what we just witnessed here. And if only, if only they had stuck with that. Then they move on in, to stop number four in chapter, chapter 15. They go to the wilderness of Shur. Then Moses led them from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Merah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Moses? Moses, did you just see what God did for us? Our canteens are empty. We've got no water, but we've been walking in the desert for three days. I would imagine there was a whole lot of whining going on. And you know what? God came through. The next verse. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his degrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Why would God bring a people just after a huge victory to a place where they see water, they need water, they're thirsty, they're dry, their lips are cracked, they run for that water, they dive in it, and they come up going, it's bitter. I think because God wanted them to learn another lesson, that life is a mixture of bitterness and sweetness. I think He wanted them to know what was truly in their hearts and you know, we only know what is truly in our hearts when we are in the midst of bitterness. Hey, I, I are guilty. I are guilty that when things get really tough, for me, I start looking at the negative and I start forgetting that God wants to see his heart in me. And that is the only way I can be a disciple, a true carrier of the love of Jesus, is if when things are trying to get me to go one way, I say, no, I'm going to keep my heart with you, God. I'm going to keep my heart with you. And then I think the third thing God wanted to show them here was that the tree was there all along. 
He said, take that tree over there. Throw it into the water. He's saying that to each and every one of us. Go to that tree. Go to that tree up there. Because on that tree is someone that has everything you could possibly need. And then he took them to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Woohoo! Woohoo! Vacation! Vacation! Why do you think God gave them that spot at that time? He was preparing them. He was preparing them for the next stop. More wilderness. More wilderness. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, (laughs) which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. (laughs) Reoccurring pattern. Israelite whiners. Moses, we're going to die. We're hungry. But you know what? God is merciful. God is faithful. So he provided bread, manna. And as I I read about this this example of, of God doing incredible things, it blows me away how it points to Jesus. Because every morning when he provided the manna, it was covered in dew. You know, throughout the Word, water is how the Holy Spirit is projected and described. Well, he was covering the bread with water. So he was giving us, in essence, a picture of the Holy Spirit surrounding Jesus, the Christ, the bread. Pointed to Jesus. Cool. Pointed to Jesus. Everything pointed to Jesus. And then when you start to look at it in a physical way, and Omer was six, pint, six pints, okay? So they had together an Omer... Uh, for each person, each day. And then double that on the sixth day so that they could take the Sabbath day off. Well, six pints of bread, if you figure that out, by just two million people, that's 4,500 tons of bread a day. That's uh, 10 trains, 30 cars full every day. Power. Presence, preeminence. (laughs) I tell you what, I sat there during a blizzard yesterday just going, God, I just don't get you. Because I'm really dumb. I have such a small brain. But God, I want to comprehend everything. Everything you did, everything you're going to do. And then we go chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, 
but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now, if Moses were to live today, he might go, he might go postal. <laughs> but no, Moses had the true heart of a father. And he went to the Lord. The Lord answered Moses and said, Walk ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And that staff, which was the serpent, was used to strike the rock. The rock who would be Jesus. The rock who would be the foundation of the church. The rock from which living water would flow. And Moses did it, and there was water. Can you imagine how much water it would take to fill three million people, animals? That's a gusher. That is a gusher. And then miraculously, when their need would be done, it would be sealed up to be used again at a later time. Massa and Meribah, chiding and temptation. People were grumpy, they were scolding, and yet God came through again. God's people left that rest stop so fulfilled because they were going to hit a place of great thirst and need again. God gave manna so that they would recognize their great thirst for a drenching of water. God also made the people aware of their need for a new drenching. And that new drenching wasn't water. Then came Amalek. Amalek, as, as is stated throughout the Scriptures, is a picture of the flesh. God prepares us for those times when we're going to get hit by the flesh. So I know that they got to soak in pure, sweet water. I know that they got to have pure, sweet bread every morning. And I know that God provided that to get them ready for the attack of the flesh. And we know that the Amalekites, they attacked. They attacked from the rear. They knew the Israelites were coming. They knew that they were in a, in a position where they could be taken easier. So they attacked them from the rear. And isn't that the way the flesh always works? Isn't that the way the enemy always works? Does the enemy really hit us on head on, face forward, most of the time? No. Oh, 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 oh what was that? Oh, that's got to be my flesh. That's got to be something biting at my flesh there. And the, you know the story, the rest of the story, where uh, Joshua was sent with the army in to do battle, and Aaron and Hur were to go up and help Moses, uh, and Moses was interceding. Points to Jesus. Points to Jesus. And during that battle all day, whenever Moses got tired and the arms dropped, the Israelites would start losing the battle. So Aaron and Hur would hold his arms up. 
Because when his arms up, they were winning the battle. And because they held his arms up, the battle was won. And do you think Joshua stopped at any point in time to look back and see what looked like a cross? A man in the middle like this? A man in the middle like this where if he wasn't here like this, they would all be dying? Pointed to Jesus. Pointed to Jesus. And then in chapter 19, they finally make their way to Mount Sinai. Some 44 days later. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim and they entered the desert, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now we, we know, of course, that because of Jesus, there is a new covenant. And it's not a covenant based on the rules and, and the regulations and, and the following book where all of Moses' rules and regulations were handed down. But it, it is based on life. It's based on living a life. Based on living a life totally committed, pointing to Jesus. You know, this is, this is a story of a group of people that moved and moved and moved. There were some 50 stops in total in all the years that, that God moved them before He brought them into their promised place. But this is, this is individual, too. I, I, I bet, and I'm not a betting man anymore, <laughs> but with great confidence, I would say I could probably look each and every one of you in the eye and say, individually, you're moving. Somehow, some way, each and every one of us, I, I are, are moving. And I pray that's a good moving. I pray that that's God's using His, His methodology of moving to help me. To help everything in my life point to Jesus. And He is. He is. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's difficult. And I'll be honest with you, I have been at a place of huge difficulty lately. But God, God put this before me, and He said, this wasn't just a group of people, Randy. This was individuals who were searching the right path who were listening for me to show them how they needed to get from one place to another. And I showed them, Randy, that if they just focused on Jesus, I'd take care of everything. Yeah, there's going to be heat. 
There's probably going to be fire, trials. There's going to be dryness, hunger, thirst. There's going to be somebody trying to kill me. And if for a minute, on any given day, you don't think somebody's not trying to kill you, you're wrong. And it's more, it's more evident in this world we live in and the day that we live in. But I am here to tell you that it can be exciting. There can still be joy. God has a purpose. That journey, that moving that He's taking you on, that move that He's taking you on, that move that He's taking you and you and you and you on, He has a glorious and high purpose for that. Now, we don't know. We don't know why things happen. I believe the Cheyenne Vineyard is moving for a glorious reason. I truly believe that I do wish I was 30 years younger. <laughs> because I still remember the last move. <laughs> but you know what? That's what God's wanting from His people. Okay, God. Yes. Yes, God. Please bring young people, young, strong people. And I'm not trying to be whiny, God. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be moving soon. You all know that. I don't know that we're 100% sure of where. I think we're pretty sure as to where God's going to take us. But I would ask you to pray. I would ask you to spend a great, a great amount of time in prayer this week that God would be very succinct in showing us what that place is and where that place is. So that we don't listen to another voice that says, well, this would be easier. You get more visibility here. <laughs> There's better parking here. You know, and I hear it all. You know, you hear people, oh, how about this? How about this? It's got great parking. <laughs> what? You know, there might be a time in the next six months where we'll just all walk to church. So parking won't be an issue. All right. <laughs> no, I, I ask you to all pray so that, we, so that we do go where God wants us to go for God's reasons. Um, I believe that wherever it is, there will be a huge potential for loving the community. I believe there will be a huge potential for uh, large groups of people to come in, to be loved, to be fed, to be ministered to. And Lord knows we have a world that needs all of that. Food, water, ministry, truth, the cloud, the pillar of fire. Everybody's looking for that. We have it. It's a stormy day out there.
But be warm in it. I live in a household where a couple of us are cold-blooded. Not me. <laughs> but I pray for warmth for you today. I would just ask each and every one of you to, to dwell with God. It's so glorious. You know, I've learned one thing. Whether you get anything out of anything is not my problem. <laughs> I'm my problem. <laughs> so I pray that God will just speak to you today and say, hey, I, I really want to get you to be like my people, to focus on me so that I can lead you where I need to lead you. Some of you are in a good place now, which is a place of palm trees and, and sweet water. Some of you are in a desert right now. And I would just urge you, if you're in a desert right now, before you leave today, come tug on my sleeve so that I can speak blessing and encouragement and hope into you. God does not want us to stay in the desert, the wilderness. He wants us to be encouraged. And I'll be honest, as, as I prepared for this and mentioned it to friends or, or family, I did hear on a number of occasions, oh, well, the place God's going to move us isn't going to necessarily be wilderness. You know what? I don't know that any of these places were really wilderness. They were where God wanted them to be at that time so he could teach them something. We are in a place where God wants us to be at this time to teach us something. I just pray that we're all open enough to get it and to hear it, to live it, to say, Yes, Lord, we're going to cut a big swath in this city, the Cheyenne Vineyard, in your name, Lord. And there will be revival. There will be revival. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for this time. Father, I just ask that you, that you whisper to each and every person here today. I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would tell them something that would encourage them, that would give them a glimpse of the exciting moments that are ahead of them. Moments that are, are not dry. Places that are not dry. But places where, where we can see your power. Where we can know your presence, Lord. And we, and we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're everywhere. Father, I ask that you would speak to this fellowship and that you would confirm, Lord, where you would want this fellowship to move to. That the leaders would hear your voice, that, that we would hear a resounding, this is the place. Father, I just ask you to speak through your people, your, your wonderful, loving people. I pray, God, that you would protect your people. And Father, I pray for supernatural filling for each and every person here, that there would be no more fatigue, 
Father, that, uh, that in our minds and in our hearts you would convince us that we were all 20-somethings ready for battle. And we pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. And remember, no whining. No grumbling. Be blessed today, moms. Enjoy it. It's not quite a picnic day, but you'll get some of those here soon. God bless you. If you need prayer, please come.